As you're making your way to uh, your seat, let's go ahead and begin with a word of prayer. Lord, we're so thankful for uh, every opportunity we have, and we want to come before you this morning. We, we're so thankful for promises that you have given to us, where you have uh, commanded that we come boldly to the throne room of grace, and the promise is that when we come in the, in the name of your Son, on the basis of his shed blood, and when we ask prayers according to your will, in line with your name, consistent with your character, you will answer those prayers. And so this morning, we want to just pray that in line with who you are and in, in line of, of with um, your commitment to glorifying yourself, and in, in line with your commitment to blessing those who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, in line with your commitments to be a God who is gracious and, and kind and compassionate to the brokenhearted, uh, we come to you this morning uh, longing for truth to be made clear. We long for our hearts to see the glories of your name that you've revealed in your word. We long to adore your greatness and your majesty. Uh, we long to see uh, clarity of your own revelation of yourself in both testaments. And so, Lord, we, we ask this morning that you would glorify your name as we study your word. I pray that we would even be changed as a result of, of what we see. I pray that we would be impacted by the truth of who you are. And so, even though we have yet to experience the answer to this prayer, we pray with faith, knowing that you will answer it, because such a prayer is not up for grabs. This is something that you care zealously about. Um, our holiness, our humility, your greatness, your glory, your renown. And so, as your, as your people, Lord, do not let us be unchanged. Uh, impact us from your word this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning I want to ask you to grab your Bibles and open up to Luke 24. Luke chapter 24. We are going to have to cover a lot of ground this morning because this is part seven of Did God Really Say? And um, part seven, as you can see there, the title for part seven is The Road to Emmaus. The Road to Emmaus. This is one of those texts that have become very critical for understanding how to really read our Bibles. How do we interpret the Bible? And this is probably one of those texts that have been most often abused uh, when it comes to um, uh, a hermeneutic that would say that we need to read the Old Testament in a new way in light of uh, something that happened in Christ's death and resurrection. Um, this is a, a new a uh, radically new Christian hermeneutic that reads the Old Testament differently because of what we've experienced. And, and um, that's, what's, that's what we've been facing in the last several weeks. Uh, you've probably heard the term redemptive historical hermeneutic. What I was using last week was the Christocentric hermeneutic. And these would be hermeneutics that actually are, are, are some, in a somewhat uh, explicit to implicit way saying that what the text actually says is not quite clear enough that you have to actually read it through a lens 
to find Christ and that everything bears testimony to Christ, and it's just up to us to find out how that is. Um, I am, I've been showing you from the, from the scriptures that the, Bible's, the Bible continues to presuppose that it's clear, and then it demonstrates that the text is sufficient and clear to testify of what God wants to communicate. And so we don't need to come with a lens looking for a particular theme or thread or topic or theology. We need to come with broken hearts. We need to come with um, faith. And we need to come with humility that acknowledges, I think God knows how to communicate. And let's let God speak. And then we will accept and embrace and submit to whatever God has chosen to reveal about himself, about his son, about his spirit, about salvation, about the world, about government, about church, about you name it, we will have sufficiency for everything if we do that. This is a text where Jesus is walking along the road to Emmaus and he catches up with a couple of disciples. And we'll find out here in the text, one of them is named Cleopas, we don't know the name of the other one. And in this conversation between Jesus and these two disciples on the road to Emmaus, he begins to talk to them about what the Old Testament testifies about himself. And this is um, where this common approach to hermeneutics has really come from, is, is this text in particular. And so to begin, before we dive into Luke 24, let me show you a few things that have been said about Luke 24 regarding hermeneutics or just simply interpretation. So on the first slide here, I got a slide from Dennis Johnson. He writes, the New Testament abounds with examples of the redemptive historical Christ-centered hermeneutic that the apostles had learned from their risen Lord. And then he mentions Luke 24 and Acts 1. And that's very important. Both of those texts are very important. Luke 24 and Acts 1. Hopefully we'll have a time to make one comment about Acts, Acts 1. But we're going to spend our time in, in Luke 24 this morning. But notice that... Um, <clears throat> He's talking here about a hermeneutic that the apostles learned from their risen Lord. So this is a new hermeneutic. This is not, some, this is not a way of reading the scriptures that would have been around before Christ's ministry. So now this is talking about a new way to read the scriptures after Christ's earthly ministry, which would have been different than the way that people would have read the scriptures before Christ's earthly ministry. That's important to notice. Similarly, Graham Goldworthy, who teaches at, um, in, in Sydney, Australia, he, he wrote this. Our concern is not how the Jewish contemporaries, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and others, it's not how they regarded Jesus and his disciples, but how the Bible portrays both the continuity and the radical newness of the Christian hermeneutic. So he's saying the same thing. He's saying that there's a radically new way to read the Old Testament because of Christ, because of Christ's earthly ministry. So you might have just imagined that you could just read the Old Testament at face value, but once Christ comes along, now there's a new way to read it. There's a way to read it that no one's ever read it before, and Christ gave the apostles this hermeneutic. That's his, that's his point. The Emmaus, too, are representative of a general inability to deal with the suffering Messiah as the bringer of the kingdom. Luke plainly shows that the encounter with the risen Christ makes the difference. Now that's important right there. Let me see that one more time because this, you'll see that this doesn't quite add up. This doesn't come out of Luke 24. He says, Luke plainly shows that the encounter with Christ 
makes the difference. Whatever transpired in the hermeneutical lecture that Jesus gave when he interpreted to them the things about himself in the scriptures, Luke 24, 27, it must have formed the basis for the later apostolic ministry. As Jesus speaks to the larger group of disciples and opens their minds to understand the scriptures, it would appear that Luke intends us to understand the centrality of his suffering and resurrection for hermeneutics. This point cannot be emphasized enough, for it signifies that the meaning of all the scriptures is unlocked by the death and resurrection of Jesus. So that means that the meaning of the scriptures are obscured, if not concealed, until Christ died and rose again. More recently than that book, he says, the resurrection is the ultimate demonstration of Christology and of God's hermeneutical reference point. Thus, the, her- the resurrection of Christ confronted his disciples with a, ra- a radical change of perspective and challenge to their hermeneutics. Although the new perspective had already been foreshadowed in the prophets and declared by Jesus, the, disciple, the disciples proved to be rather impervious to the truths involved. Partly this was due to their inability to the grasp that the Messiah should suffer before entering his glory. They needed instruction in how the Old Testament is about the Christ. In one sense, I would actually agree with that last statement. They did need instruction. But the question really comes... Did they need instruction in a new way to read it that they'd never had access to before? Or did they need instruction in something that they had already received and were actually accountable for and were somewhat guilty of for mishandling? Similarly, G.K. Beale says that Christ as the center of history is the key to interpreting the earlier portions of the, new Testament, um, the Old Testament and its promises. And then one more example, Sidney Gradonis writes this. I think I have that, just making sure here. Okay, good, I'm glad I lucked here. Let me read it off the PowerPoint. Um, Jesus' disciples finally fathomed the incredible truth that the crucified Jesus was God's promised Messiah and the living Lord. From that faith perspective... The disciples looked back at the Old Testament and saw numerous references to the Jesus they knew. In other words, they now read their old, the Old Testament in light of their knowledge of Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen Lord. Now that's an interesting challenge because notice what he's saying. New Testament apostles are now looking back at the Old Testament and because they have a personal relationship with Jesus, they now learn how to read the Old Testament It's a little bit of cart before the horse, wouldn't you say? The the apostles did not recognize that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ because the Old Testament scriptures told them so. They had a relationship with Christ that then showed them how to understand a meaning of the Old Testament that they previously did not have access to before they knew Jesus Christ. What good is the Old Testament revelation if it's not clear until you have a a relationship with the Messiah? And then in hindsight, find stuff that you never could have seen before. Now, the Old Testament is clear. And the clarity of the Old Testament is under assault. God has always known how to speak. He knows how to speak. And he will always in the future know how to speak. He does not struggle with speech impediment. He has no inability. For him to speak in human language is perfectly within his capabilities. And he does it 
without flaw. So there's no, there's no lack of clarity in the Old Testament. The problem is indeed us. Before we, um, well, you know, let, me just, let me just turn and dive into Luke 24. For the sake of time, we've got we to start looking at what Luke actually says here. So grab your Bibles and look at Luke 24, verse 13. Here's the context, and we're going to have to fly. Verse 13 Two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which is about seven miles from Jerusalem. And so a seven-mile journey at the average walking speed of three miles an hour, that's two hours and 20 minutes. Two hours and 20 minutes. They were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. Everything that had taken place that weekend, verse 15, they were walking and, I'm sorry, they were talking and discussing. While that was happening, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. So all of a sudden, Jesus Christ of Nazareth just pulls up right next to them, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And this is so, so important. What's explicit about this passage is that they did not know that Jesus was the one who was talking. That's explicit. So if it's critical to know about Jesus' resurrection from the dead and by way of personal relationship in order to understand the Old Testament, this passage makes no sense. Because they don't even know they're talking to Jesus until the end of the passage. Verse 17. And he said to them, What are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still looking sad. One of them named Cleopas. Now Cleopas, we don't know exactly who that is. There is a Clopas in John 19. Uh, early church tradition says it's the same guy. It could be. I don't know any reason why it couldn't be. Uh, that's, there's Mary uh, the mother of Je Jesus, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and that would be an alternate spelling of the same name, and then Mary Magdalene, and they are all at the cross. And so if, that if the early church tradition is correct, that those are the same, Cleopas is Clopas, then this would actually be Jesus' uncle, because that Mary was his mother's sister. And so you have uh, Cleopas, don't, doesn't, ultimately doesn't matter if he's um, the, the husband of, of Mary or not, they answered and they said to him, um, or Cleopas answers and says, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and are unaware of the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? <laughs> I, just, I can't imagine, you know, I just love to see Jesus' face when he says that. <laughs> what are you talking about? What things? <laughs> what I miss? <laughs> and so they said, the things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. By the way, just quick marginal note, they did not struggle to understand what the Old Testament said about the Messiah redeeming Israel. That was clear. Verse 22. But also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came, saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it exactly as the woman had also said, but him they did not see. That ends Cleopas' monologue and now verse 25. And he said to them, O oh, foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. 
When we finish walking through this passage, I'm going to have a few bullet points of outline and observation to understand and appreciate some of the implications, especially for hermeneutics, for, for Bible interpretation. But let me just simply make it very obvious here. Just look at verse 25 and ask yourself, is this a rebuke or is this instruction? This is so clearly a rebuke. If Jesus were in the business of giving his, apostle, his disciples a new hermeneutic that they had never received before, he would have simply said, oh, you know what, let me, let me, let me teach you something. You've never known this before. Here's something that's critical. And now you wouldn't have had this before. I mean, it's never been revealed to you, so let me give it to you. God has never rebuked his people for not knowing something that has never been revealed before. This is a rebuke involving folly, which is a lack of understanding, and slow of heart to believe, a sluggishness with regard to faith. They are being rebuked not for a hermeneutic they've never had before, they're being rebuked for not believing what's already been revealed. Verse 26, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Verse 27, then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And then the story just moves on, verse 28, and then they're approaching the village and they keep going. It, it, it's, there, there's no record of what Jesus says from the Old Testament. I mean, this is impossible possibly hard to fathom if the whole point of this narrative is that Jesus is giving his apostles and his disciples and us in the church age as Christians a radically new way to read the Old Testament. To say there's a radically new way to read it. But by the way, how, that, how you read it, that's not even important. I'm not even going to tell you. He doesn't even mention what Jesus says because Luke knows that his audience already has the Old Testament. He doesn't need to. We already have the Old Testament scriptures. He just simply makes the point that Jesus took the time to walk through the Old Testament, not to instruct them in a new hermeneutic, but to just show them what the scriptures actually say about the Christ. It's fantastic. This text only makes sense on the basis of the clarity of the Old Testament. Verse 28, as they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though... He were going farther. But they urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it is getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, and breaking it, he, gave them, uh, he, he began giving it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. Verse 32, they said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? Weren't our hearts burning while he was explaining scripture back before we even knew that Jesus rose from the dead? Wasn't it profound 
to see the clarity of the Old Testament as he explained to us what we were so culpable and so sluggish to believe, what we were so um, foolish and, and, and unfaithful with, looking at those truths that are right there on the pages of our Old Testament, weren't our hearts burning? Clarity of the Old Testament doesn't come from the, some experience. It comes from the Scriptures themselves. So, verse 33, they got up that very hour, they returned to Jerusalem, so they just turned right around, two hours and 20 minutes, straight back to Jerusalem. They found gathered together the eleven and those who were with, him, uh, with them, saying, the Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. And they began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of bread. Um, while they were saying these things, while they were telling these things, he himself stood in the, their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While they, while they, were, uh, while they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And he gave them a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. So clearly he has a resurrection body, actual physical body, but clearly distinct from his former physical body, but clearly bearing the marks of what happened in his physical body. He's capable of eating and capable of walking through walls and locked doors. Verse 44, now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that Christ would suffer and rise again in the dead, and from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Clearly that makes an incredible transition to Acts, which is really Luke, Luke book 2. And the Great Commission happening where Jesus sends out his apostles to go preach the gospel to all the nations. Notice, they are witnesses, not of a new hermeneutic, they are witnesses of a physical resurrection, which was foretold in the Old Testament, and now they are eyewitnesses of that fact that has happened in history. Now, I want to make a few observations here. Luke 24, some problems with this new hermeneutic idea. I mentioned this already. Luke 24 is not, it's a rebuke, not instruction. It's a rebuke, not instruction. It would be unimaginable for this to be a new instruction when Jesus is rebuking them for something they could never have known before. I mentioned to you that, um, you know, several of these authors and several of these theologians would point to Acts chapter 1 as a parallel, and that's actually very important. It's very fan fascinating to look at what Acts chapter 1 says. And just for a brief moment, look at Acts chapter 1. In the, in, in the next section here, Luke is continuing his, his, his narrative to, to Theophilus. And um, Theophilus is a, uh, most likely a, a Roman. He's very, very, almost certainly a Gentile. And Luke seems to be writing both his gospel and the book of Acts as a, as a uh, trial brief for Paul as he's in trial, still under house arrest, where it ends in Acts chapter 28. 
And so now he's writing all of this for Theophilus' benefit, probably who was involved in the trial. That's a, that's a, a, uh, I surmise that. I you know, can assume that. Theophilus is involved in Paul's trial, and so he's leaving him with legal account, with a, with a document that can uh, cover the basis and the facts so that he can actually know who Jesus was and what Paul's ministry really is. And he establishes all the facts, not only of Jesus' ministry, but in Paul's ministry, both in colonies and in the, in the Roman Empire at large. He begins book two with a statement about Jesus' 40-day seminar with the disciples. And this is fascinating. Pick it up in verse three. To the disciples, he presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. He's teaching them about all the things pertaining to the kingdom of God for this 40-day period. Verse 4, gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which, he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Again, another New Testament reference to water and spirit, which is water baptism of repentance, spirit baptism of regeneration. So when they come together, verse 6, they were asking him, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Now at this point, if Jesus, if Jesus had given them a radically new hermeneutic to reinterpret the Old Testament in light of their New Testament, post-resurrection, church-centric experience, this is the perfect time, the perfect time to rebuke them and say to them, what, what are you doing? Why are you imagining the kingdom pertains to Israel? Instead, he just got through teaching them for 40 days about the kingdom. And it says... Is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he does not rebuke them. Instead, he just says, it's not for you to know the times. The kingdom being restored to Israel, that's not something you need to know right now. What you do need to know is that not many days from now, you'll receive authority and you'll receive the Holy Spirit. So in verse 5, you're going to receive the Spirit uh, in, a, in a new fashion, not many days from now. Verse 6, when, when, what about the kingdom? And he says, you don't need to know the times of that. But he already told them the times of the beginning of the church age. So, verse 7, it's not for you to know the times or the epics which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest parts of the earth. And so, in Acts chapter 1, if Jesus were in the business of teaching his apostles a new hermeneutic, when they say, hey, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel, he should have rebuked them. But he doesn't. He says, no, that's exactly right, but you just don't need to know the times. And in Luke 24, when he's supposed to be giving them this new hermeneutic that they've never had before, he should be instructing, but he actually rebukes them. And ironically, neither one of these passages makes sense if Jesus is teaching a radically new hermeneutic. Jesus is not undermining anything. He's not overturning anything. He's not creating new meaning. He's not creating a way to redefine meaning that wasn't there. And he's not giving them a new interpretation that uh, was only invisible to eyes until Christ came along. He's exposing them to what the scriptures actually say. It's a rebuke. It's not instruction. Second observation, this is a challenge for uh, the, the idea that this is a new hermeneutic the disciples' problem is faith, not knowledge. It's faith, not knowledge. They're slow to believe the Old Testament. It's not that they were 
uh, unaware of this hermeneutic that had never been given to them before. And so I've already explained that. I think that's pretty self-evident. So look at a few examples, a few observations here to understand positively how, how we should be thinking about hermeneutics. So on the next slide, you can see the first observation here. Jesus' hermeneutic. If you want to say, what did Jesus actually believe about interpretation? Um, as we read this account from Luke, number one, notice that Luke omits Jesus' hermeneutical content. Luke's omission is deafening. If Luke viewed this sermon as the instance where we get a hermeneutic that we're supposed to read in a new fashion, he failed miserably because he doesn't say anything of what Jesus actually says. There's no, not a single quote of Jesus' sermon on the road to Emmaus. He just summarizes it. So we're only left with two options. If that's actually what Jesus is doing, then either Luke didn't know that secret knowledge, he didn't have that secret knowledge, which disqualifies him from writing a New Testament document, or he knew it and just deliberately withheld it from his audience, which is unconscionable. Number two, for Luke, the Old Testament already revealed Jesus' content. He, there's no need to explain Jesus' speech and sermon because... He says, he just went back and explained the Old Testament. Luke is in the business of writing new revelation. He's an, he's an apostle. He is a New Testament author. He's writing new truths entirely consistent with the old truths already re revealed. But nevertheless, he doesn't have to repeat what God already said. Number three, every portion of the Old Testament contains revelation about Jesus Christ. Look at verse 25. Jesus said to them, O foolish men, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. And then look at verse 27. Beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. There is all the difference in the world between saying that Jesus explained all the things concerning himself in the scriptures and he explained to them that all the scriptures concern himself. Those are two different statements. And he, never, he did not say the second one. He didn't say that that's all that the Old Testament contains. He doesn't say that he's, he's the, the summary of everything. He says, let me show you what the scriptures actually say about me. Before he even used the first person singular because they still didn't know that it was him. Secondly, look at, look at verse 44. Notice what Jesus said when he, saw, when, he, when he showed up to the eleven with all the other disciples assembled together with them. In verse 44, Jesus did say, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was with you, that all the things which are written about me in the law and the, of Moses and the prophets and the scriptures must be fulfilled. That is totally different. There's a vast difference between that and saying that all things written in the law, prophets, and psalms are about me. Those are, those are not the same statements. Those don't mean the same thing. Jesus is showing that every portion of the scriptures bears testimony to him, and he went to those locations and explained them to the disciples. Fourth, Jesus rebukes unbelief and ignorance of revelation. And so this is not a radically new way to read, but a rebuke for not embracing what is already there, already accessible to the reader. And so what's fascinating is I, I you know, I think I've wanted to do this for a long time, just take a, a brief stab at the kind of texts that Jesus would have gone to. 
And again, I think it's so important that Luke didn't record the texts that he actually went to because he just expects his readers to go to the Old Testament and see what it testifies of Jesus of Nazareth and recognize that it says clearly who Christ is. And when Jesus of Nazareth shows up historically, it's verified not by reading the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus of Nazareth, but by recognizing what it says about Christ and recognizing that only Jesus of Nazareth is that individual. God the Son, the angel of the Lord, did indeed become man and was born in time, space, and history and lived a perfect life and died and rose from the dead just as the scriptures said he would before it happened. If it wasn't that clear, then there's no way to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. You could pick a Messiah of your own choosing and make him the centerpiece of your interpretive lens and just make the Old Testament change its meaning and read it in a radically new way that no one ever read it before and it would point to whoever you chose. Instead, the Old Testament bears independent, clear testimony that Jesus of Nazareth is indeed the Messiah. So, let's do that. We've got two hours and 20 minutes to make our way to Emmaus. Just kidding. We have much less. We have, we have 24 minutes. 24 minutes. So, we're just going to do a zip file. I wrote down, I, I, what I did is I literally start, I started on a, on a document. I started working through a list of bullet points, and I just started thinking of texts that would be the kind of texts that I would go to. And once I got to about 30, I stopped, because I knew that at that point, we're still less than one per minute, and we won't have that kind of time even. But let's just do that. Let's just jump in and look at a few texts. What does the Old Testament say, not by way of reading anything in, but by way of just letting it speak does it speak of this person, Jesus of Nazareth, who is actually speaking in Luke 24, who's actually addressing the uh, Old Testament scriptures to two disciples on the road to Emmaus? Does the Old Testament scriptures clearly reveal and, and speak pertaining that individual? And the answer is over and over and over and over again, yes, absolutely. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, God speaks in plural form, interpersonal plurality among the one God. It happens again in Genesis 3.22. God refers to himself as an us. It happens again in Genesis 11.6 and 7. God refers to himself as an us. Let us go down and see what these men are doing as they build the Tower of Babel. Genesis 19 verse 23. You have two people called the Lord Yahweh himself. One on heaven, one on earth. And the Lord from earth rains down fire from the Lord in heaven on Sodom and Gomorrah. Two divine individuals. How about Genesis 3.15? You know the seed promise. And we've talked about that briefly. In response to the curse of the serpent, there will be a seed born of Eve. That means an offspring of humanity. Just like seed of plants produces like kind, so mankind's going to produce like kind. So this seed has to become a human. And this seed's going to establish animosity between fallen Satan and fallen man. And as we've mentioned before, when God speaks Genesis 3.15, man does not have a line, um, animosity towards Satan. They are on the same team. They are enslaved to sin. They are in defiance against God. So the seed promise means there's going to be animosity between these two parties, which currently it does not exist. He's going to reverse the curse and he's going to restore dominion that was given to man by virtue of being created in God's image. Genesis 4.1. And I just imagine Jesus saying these things. You know, I just imagine Jesus saying, 
Cleopas. And if the second one was Simon, or if, as we saw later in Luke 24, that Simon was a refer- referral to one of Simon's experiences of the resurrection Christ, doesn't matter. But let's just, for the sake of clarity, let's just say Cleopas and unnamed friend, just in case that wasn't the same Simon account. So Cleopas and friend, haven't you read what happened after the seed promise? The first time Eve bore a son, a seed, and she says, I've begotten a man-child. Probably the best translation would be an appositive, comma, the Lord. And she used the name. She, the name etymologically would mean he will become. Hava is a very rare verb in Hebrew. Hava means to become. He will become is the etymological meaning. And in there it's the first historical use of the name Yahweh, first recorded historical use is on the lips of Eve when she has an offspring, and she's like, this must be it. God said I'd have a a seed, and this must be the fulfillment. And by the end of the chapter, he's committed murder, and he's clearly not the seed, and oh boy, we're in a mess here. But nevertheless, she's taking the seed promise literally and says, I've begotten a son, a man-child, comma, Yahweh, which means he will become. You can't even get four chapters into Revelation without the expectation of a human who would reverse the curse and establish animosity between Satan and man. And Cleopas, an unnamed friend, haven't you read in the scriptures? And now I can appeal to what we did last week, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and the angel of the Lord in Exodus. Haven't you read in Exodus? Exodus 23, the angel of the Lord, the angel of God, the angel of the covenant. Haven't you read? And don't you know that angel of Yahweh occurs 56 times in 52 verses in the Old Testament? And angel of God occurs 10 times in the Old Testament. And, and don't you know that that's when, when the angel of Yahweh speaks, God speaks, and there's an equal sign between their speech. And they, not only does he just speak accurately, he actually shares in the essence of God Elohim because God Elohim says, my name, my essence, and my character is in him. A divine person. You've read that, right, Cleopas, an unnamed friend? And you've read, surely, in Exodus 3, remember the burning bush? Moses shows up, this bush isn't even burning. Well, you've read that account, haven't you? You remember who was speaking. Oh, that's right, Exodus 3, 2, the angel of Yahweh. And he shows up, and he starts revealing himself, and he says, I will be whom I will be. Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I did not reveal myself by my name, Yahweh, to the patriarchs, but now I am. And I can imagine Cleopas and unnamed friends saying, you know, stranger, who have we don't yet know who you are? That's a good point. How in the world does God say at Exodus 6, I've never revealed myself by that name, when Genesis is full of references of Yahweh being the divine name? And the stranger would say, oh, well, that's because he has just begun from the burning bush to reveal the character of the meaning of what it means to be the angel of the Lord and Yahweh by delivering the people to the land because he has promised the land to your seed. And now here the angel of the Lord is starting to fulfill his divine function of getting the people to the land. And so, yes, they knew the name by way of label, but not the experience of being delivered out of slavery into the land. 
So wouldn't you know that, of course, Exodus 6 says, now you'll know what my name means by way of experience because I'm delivering you out of slavery into the promised land. And that's exactly what the angel of the Lord did, Clopas. Remember, Clopas, do you remember? Don't you remember? Assault after assault after assault against the people of God? Isn't that the function of the angel of the Lord? To be an adversary against every adversary and an ally against every ally with every ally for the nation of Israel? And wouldn't you know that Balaam goes to curse the people? And who showed up with sword drawn? That was the angel of the Lord. And here we are, you know, reading that account, thinking, Jesus, just save me. But he waits again. He waits till they get inside the house and breaks bread. But if he had already said it, he would have just said, yeah, that was me, standing there with sword drawn. There I was, divine, a divine individual, a divine person, sworn to protect and be an adversary against every adversary. And I took on Balaam because he was coming against the nation as an adversary. And wouldn't you know that Balaam, a false prophet, testified of me, saying that a scepter is going to come out of Judah, and he's going to crush the head of Moab. Even a false prophet can read Genesis 3.15 clearly. Because Moab was an adversary against the nation. And he knew that the angel of the Lord was going to crush Moab, even though he wished it were otherwise. A false prophet bearing clear testimony to the divine angel of the Lord. And wouldn't you know, Cleopas, an unnamed friend, don't you remember Deuteronomy 18? I mean, after all that your people went through, you saw God speak from Mount Sinai. The mountain was shaking and quaking, and there was fire at the top, and the whole mountain was shaking, and everybody was terrified, not fearing the Lord, afraid. There's a radical difference. And God condescended to speak to you by way of human mediation, namely Moses. And Deuteronomy 18 says, I'm going to continue condescending. I'm going to speak to you divine words through human mediation. It's going to be a prophet like Moses in human form. And Cleopas, you, you know that that seed promise continues to get narrowed. It started with Eve. It got narrowed to Abraham. It got promised to him and his seed. The land did. And you, got, you know it got promised and narrowed to Isaac. And it got, not, not Ishmael, it got narrowed to Jacob, not Esau. It got narrowed to, Joseph, to Judah and not any of the other 12. And it got narrowed to David, not any of the others. Cleopas, an unnamed friend, surely you remember reading 2 Samuel 7, the conditions on the Davidic covenant. If he sins, I will chasten him. That requires for the seed promise to be fulfilled, a seed who would be sinless, because if a son of David sins, he will be chastened, and he is disqualified from fulfilling the seed promise. Surely you've read that. Surely, Cleopas, an unnamed friend, you've read the conditions of the Davidic covenant in the Psalms. Psalm 89, verse 30. If his sons, speaking of the sons of David, uh, the firstborn of Israel, if his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But... Go on down to verse 36. His seed shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me, it shall be established forever like the moon, and the witness in the sky is faithful. As sure as the sun keeps shining, there's going to be a seed of David who lives a perfect life and will reign forever, Cleopas and unnamed friend. 
That's a condition on the Davidic covenant. And surely, Cleopas and unnamed friend, you've read the conditions of the Davidic covenant in Psalm 132. Verse 10, for the sake of David, your servant, do not turn away the face of your anointed. That's the Messiah. Anointed is the English word, by the way, of Messiah in Hebrew, anointed, or Christos in Greek, Christ. Do not turn away from the face of your anointed. The Lord has sworn to David a truth which will not turn back. Of the fruit of your body, I will set upon your throne. There will be a physical descendant of David who will reign on the throne. That is a guarantee. And here's the condition. This has to happen, in other words. Verse 12. If your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony, which I will teach them, their sons also shall sit upon your throne forever. And so Solomon comes to the throne. Eh. Rehoboam. Eh. You go all the way through the lineage of the kings of David and through the Davidic line. You're going to run out of before long. Oh, and Cleopas, an unnamed friend, surely you know the condition on the Davidic covenant from Isaiah 53 because surely this needs to deserve, this deserves some airplay in this whole conversation. 53 verse 10, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, this servant of the Lord, to put him to grief if, if, here's the condition, if he would render himself as a guilt offering, if he will render himself as a guilt offering? Has there ever been a guilt offering that survived? The fulfillment of the seed promised through David requires the death of a perfect son of David. If he offers himself as a guilt offering, he will see his seed. The seed of David will see his seed. In one verse, a singular seed and a corporate seed, all in the same verse. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge of the righteous one, my servant will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities." Wow, Cleopas, an unnamed friend, surely you've seen these passages and you've seen the conditions. The Davidic covenant requires the death of a perfect son of David. And it obviously requires a resurrection because if it requires a burnt offering, he does not see his seed with his own eyes in the land unless he rises from the dead. And we're just to 2 Samuel 7. We're just to the Davidic covenant. We've basically, if we're condensing our zip file walk to Emmaus, we're already about mile marker 5. So let's just pick up the pace. <laughs> How about Psalm 2? Cleopas, an unnamed friend, surely you remember that the psalmist, and here it's, we know it's David from the, uh, even though there's no superscript, we know it's David from Acts chapter 4. David writes in Psalm 2 that the nations are going to hate the anointed. Yahweh and his anointed, the Lord and his Messiah, they are going to be the antagonism of the nations. Yahweh and his anointed, the seed promise, the angel of the Lord, the Son of God, pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, 
They will receive animosity from the nations, always have, always will, because man is enslaved in unbelief. In verse 3 it says, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. And man raises his fist, shakes his fist at God Almighty and his anointed and the redemptive purposes of all the promises of God. And God in heaven laughs. He laughs a laugh of derision at these nations who try to oppose him and his anointed one. And he speaks to them in his anger, and he will terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. In the face of all the antagonism and unbelief of the nations of the world, God swears an unviolable, inviolable oath. The king will reign from Zion. I will tell of the decree of the Lord, and he said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, the very ends of, your, of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he may not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Should we be shocked that Jesus could say to Cleopas and his unnamed friend, do homage to me, that I not become angry, and that you perish in the way, because my wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in me. Not because we read Christ in the Old Testament, because we read Psalm 2 in the context of Genesis through Psalm 2. about Psalm 8? Praising God for his majesty and incredible condescension to subject created order to mankind. It's a praise of what will happen in the future. God's majestic. He's displayed his splendor among the heavens, but it's amazing, verse 3, that he would actually create these heavens. It's the work of his fingers. It doesn't even require any bicep or back it doesn't even require much flexing other than a flick of a finger for God to create the moon and the stars and to order them and ordain them in exactly the fashion that we see them. What's amazing is that he would subjugate all of that to mankind and put him in dominion over all things, including the animal order, which, at last I checked, bears still kill people. And we should not be surprised that, of course, when the New Testament quotes Psalm 8, it says, yet we don't see this now, but we will. Praising God for subjugating the earth and returning dominion and reversing the curse back to the control of man. Surely, Cleopas, an unnamed friend, you read Psalm 16, where David articulates a resurrection hope. He personally is convinced that he won't rot in the uh, that he won't be abandoned to the grave. He won't be abandoned there perpetually because he's convinced that the Holy One won't even undergo decay. And surely you. You, you read that right, Cleopas, right? You read that in context, Cleopas? You know what the Hasid is there? Who's the Hasid? Deuteronomy 33. The Hasid is the one who was tested at Massah and Meribah. God himself, the Lord. Yahweh of Exodus, Yahweh of Deuteronomy is the Hasid of Psalm 16. And David says, I'm not going to be abandoned to the grave because you're not even going to allow your Holy One to undergo decay. 
And if you're not allowing him to undergo decay, the seed of Eve, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David, a very real human being who testifies as a divine person in Exodus 3, 2, I'm him, I'm coming, I will be that individual. He is going to take on a body, he's going to die, and he won't even undergo decay, which is how long? Remember John 11? Don't open the tomb. It's been four days. He just stinks. It has to be by day three. He's not even going to undergo decay. You've read that, right, Cleopas? Psalm 22. David's experiencing the opposition and antagonism that characterized the nation of Israel. He's been isolated and abandoned. He feels like God is not responding. But Psalm 22 has an interesting conclusion. It concludes with a stanza that's a chiasm. From verse 25 to 31, starting in kind of a concentric circle, you know, 25 and 31 would be A, and 26 and 30 are B, and 26B and 29B are C, 27 is D, 29 is D, and then 28A is E, and 28B is E. And the pinnacle of this chiasm is the kingdom being the Lord's, and the Yahweh is going to rule over all the nations. And it's very theocentric, and this is, this is clearly written after 2 Samuel 7. David knows that the seed coming is going to rule in this fashion. David has never, that I know of, been so uh, wicked to articulate all glory going to him in some sort of global degree. This is clearly an anticipation of a seed, which is explicit in verse 30. Seed will serve him, even the corporate seed will serve Yahweh, um, and it will be told to the Lord, told of the Lord to the coming generations. Surely, Cleopas, you, you understand that the angel of the Lord is throughout the Psalms as the protection of people who are suffering for their fidelity to the promise starting in Psalm 34 and even becoming ex exaggerated in 35 and 69 and 109 when David can say that the antagonism that's come against the nation and the adversaries against the nation are now being focalized on me as an individual. David has enemies who over and over and over again are unjustly his enemies. David's done nothing to them. He's just been faithful to the promises. And all of this onslaught is coming against David because of these promises that are redemptive and glorious and because unbelievers are rejecting truth as it's being revealed. And so Psalm 35, verse 5 can say, verse 4, sorry, can say, let those be ashamed and dishonored who seek my life. Let those be turned back and humiliated who devise evil against me. Let them be like chaff before the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them on. Let, them, let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. For without cause they hid their net for me. Without cause they dug a pit for my soul. Let destruction come upon him unawares. David is experiencing the hostility of unbelief coming against the redemptive promises given by God in his person because he is the ancestor to the seed. And so the antagonisms coming against him are adversaries to redemptive purposes of the people of God. He calls on the angel of the Lord to be his personal protection. And so in Psalm 35 and 69 and 109, you can see these antagonisms, and whether it's Ahithophel, whether it's Absalom, whether it's future generations like uh, Jehu or Athaliah 
or whether it's the ultimate antagonism coming against the seed in the form of Herod or Judas, it does not matter. The Davidic experience is one that is going to be uniquely replicated by all the faithful in David's line until the maximum assault comes against the seed himself, Christ. So Cleopas, surely you've read those passages of the Psalms in the context of what's happening and and you understood that there's this Davidic experience pointing forward to the fulfillment of the seed. Well, we got through Psalms. We haven't even touched Job, Isaiah, Jeremiah, any of the prophets. Luke records that Jesus said this was true of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. That's a, that's a, that's a summary of the law, uh, the, the prophets, and the writings. The Jews call their Bible the Tanakh, Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketabim. That's what it is. It's the canon. The entire Old Testament scriptures testify concerning Christ. That's not a hermeneutical statement. That's a statement about content. That's about what's actually there. And then what's profound is, of course, as Jesus had this conversation with Cleopas and his unnamed friend, their hearts were burning. Their hearts weren't burning because they realized that it was Jesus and that he rose from the dead. Their hearts were burning because of the clarity of the Old Testament scripture. And then later, they were, their eyes were uncovered so that they could see, oh, this is Jesus. He was been talking to us the whole time. Here he is an eternally divine person who in time and space and history took on humanity, and here he is with a resurrection body speaking to us about his doings and actings before he became man. What in the world just happened? Why didn't we believe it? Why didn't we take the Old Testament at face value? All of it's there. Christ's future glory and his sufferings. Well, hopefully that's helpful just to think about what potentially could have happened right there on the road to Emmaus. And there's so much more that we could say and wish, wish that we could say. But next time, well, next week we're going to take a break because of the uh, service before Christmas. But two weeks from now, we'll come back and finish up this series. And I want to just look at one particular passage in the Old Testament. It becomes an encouragement for us as we think about hermeneutics and how important it is for our own spiritual growth. Uh, really explains how hermeneutics is a heart issue, and that's possibly one of the most important things we can talk about in light of this question, did God really say? So let's just go ahead and close with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for this uh, just speedy journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus and thinking of how clear your Old Testament really is. It's just thrilling, Lord, to see you speak. We cover our mouth. We... We repent of ever imagining that there's uh, something tricky here or imagining that you misspoke or that something was unclear. Thank you for such clear communication. You are such a glorious God, and we, we long to humbly listen, to be quick to hear and slow to speak with regard to your word. And thank you for this time. In your name we pray. Amen.